So Misasha, recently I had to look back at my life to get a realistic picture of what I have done. And as it turns out, I left corporate America just about 18 years ago. I literally read that and was like, impossible, but I guess you're right. (laughs) We're not that old, right? Except we've known each other for 25 years. And this was like me taking stock around my birthday for like, let's look back at my life. So I'm a little in shock because I remember those days like they were yesterday. And the scary thing is, according to the stats, like some of our listeners may have been born 18 years ago as I was leaving corporate America. Stop it. (laughs) So hi, youth of today. But all that said, it's entirely possible that while some things have changed in corporate, a lot of things, namely DE&I work, how we talk about DEI, what words we use, the urgency with which white people view the work have remained the same. So when you reflected, I was doing the same. And, you know, for me, leaving corporate America was much more recent, like last year recent. Uh. <laughs> Woohoo! I'm hat tipping you. Way to do that to focus on growing this platform together. Thanks. And being good parents, right? Like it's also for the children. That too. Yes, of course, children. And I can definitely attest to all of what you said, Sarah. You know, my first official role in DE&I was in 2007. Um, So a long time ago. (laughs) But that wasn't last year. (laughs) Right. But you know, I feel like I've been queen of the ERGs before and after that employee resource groups in the long form of that. You know, I've leaned in and then I've leaned out. I've been marginalized, told that I was exotic with heavy air Air quotes quotes. there. I've participated in those shadow networks where we were able to talk about how it's like to not be 100% white in legal America. So I've seen this all in practice. So I think what I take away from that is that I feel like, you know, more recently, the conversations have become more open, but the mindsets, maybe not so much. So today's episode is for all of you out there who've worked in a corporation or a professional services firm or anything that's structured as a company and want to know what you might be doing wrong and what you can definitely be doing better to advance equity and make your workplace one where everyone feels included. I love that. And this conversation was amazing, right? We speak with journalist, founder, and speaker, Ruchika Tolshin, who is author of an incredibly practical book called Inclusion on Purpose, which totally lines up with our informative and practical approach in our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable, talking about racism. She's really, really amazing. And I appreciated that time we got to spend with her. So you'll want to listen. You'll want to buy the book and maybe even consider bringing her into your companies to make change. Definitely follow on social. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Hi, everyone. I'm Ruchika Tolshan. I am a Seattle, Washington, home of the Duwamish people land based author. I just literally launched my book yesterday since our conversation is today, the day after my book launch, Inclusion on Purpose, which focuses on how to be more intersectional in creating inclusive, equitable workplaces where everyone can belong. I'm also Singaporean. So I'm an immigrant to the United States. I'm a mother and I identify as a woman of color. So thank you for explaining all of that. And one of the things that is so clear from reading your book is that we align so much 
in the core approach to our collective work. We really appreciated your approach to laying out practical ways that companies and individuals who make up those companies can bring about change to be more equitable and in- importantly, like inclusive. So we all have our stories about why we write. Could you please tell us what led you to write this book and how did you end up with that title? Oh, goodness. I turned to writing really early in my life, honestly, you know, through sadly a childhood where there was quite a lot of pain and trauma. And I found books in many ways to be my escape. You know, I remember I grew up as a racial minority in Singapore. So I did often feel like my stories, my experiences, you know, weren't reflected. I was, we made up less than 10% of the population there. And so I've always turned to books and writing fairly early in my life. The thought that I would be published by a, you know, a well-known publisher is really beyond my wildest dreams. It's beyond my ancestors' wildest dreams. I'm the first woman in my family, in my extended family to work outside the home for paid work. So that just, you know, to even pursue an ambition, a career. But what spurred me to write this book and really to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, and I know these words are trendy and they get thrown around all the time. I like to believe that I at least started focusing on this before it became trendy. And the reason I did is because that was born out of an experience of both experiencing and witnessing the type of exclusion and bias and racism and sexism that women of color experience in workplaces really around the world, but especially here in the United States, which, you know, as an immigrant, many of us are promised that, hey, this is, you know, the land where all your dreams can come true. And what matters is how hard you work and, you know, how well you get educated and everything else, you know, doesn't matter. Your skin color doesn't matter. Where you come from doesn't matter. What your name is doesn't matter. And actually it does. And all of those things do matter and they add up. And so I really wanted to write a book that centered women of color. We know and research shows that we experience the, the most profound form of sort of discrimination and bias. We are a very large demographic, soon to be the largest demographic of women working in the United States. And I just felt like there was nothing that was centering our stories, especially in the workplace setting. And so the time was ripe. I didn't realize that women of color were going to be the largest demographic in the working population. I did not know that. We're still a few decades away, (laughs) but we're not far. And again, it also, you know, if you widen the aperture a little bit around the world in the non-white women are the largest, you know, women sort of making up the workforce. So I think that there's a real opportunity here to remind folks that, you know, we must center women of color. We are the largest majority globally. I think that's so important. And especially as we're recording this in Women's History Month, and I think that discussion has been often through a a lens that is the white female lens in this country. So I'm here for all of this. I loved your book because you started by defining terms. And as an attorney, like I, I really love that. And words really, really matter, especially when we are talking about inclusion and belonging. So why was that important for you to do at the start? 
I, you know, terms, obviously words really matter to me as a journalist, right? And they've always mattered to be able to name what's going on. And actually, I think the biggest part of why I wrote this book, I didn't, you know, talk about this earlier. The biggest part of why I wrote this book is because when I was going through some of those experiences in a more corporate setting, in the workplace setting, I didn't have words to describe what was happening, right? I was like, okay, it's, you know, you're a lawyer. So I wasn't like, you know, I was like, this isn't a, a situation where I can, I have legal recourse that I can turn to, but I know that what I'm experiencing isn't right. And I know, and what I'm witnessing other women of color around me. And when we get together and we have our group chats and our happy hours and whatnot, there wasn't language really there, right? We weren't talking about even bias. You know, microaggressions was a term that really came back to the public for kind of in, the, in 2016, right? But what about for women who were in the workplace in the 80s and 90s and you know 2000s and whatnot? What do you say? Like, what are those words to describe what you're experiencing? And so I really hope as folks read the book, what they realize is there are many ways that these acts of exclusion and bias and discrimination and racism and sexism show up in our lives and how we have to navigate them. And it's just not right. And having words to describe that, having terminology that we can turn to each other and say, right, like, did you feel that too? That was, you know, not be gaslit about it was something that I was really focused on. I also, for me, the term women of color and over the years, you know, I've heard mixed things about, you know, should you use this? Should you not? I completely understand and accept that the term women of color is both incomplete and imprecise. And I still use it because as a social and political identity, it's very powerful. And what whiteness does is often it separates us out by categorizing us so that we don't recognize or we aren't given the opportunity to connect and build a coalition because we are told whiteness tells us that our struggles are separate, right? So, you know, who are you as an Indian woman to talk about what a Latinx or a Black woman or an East Asian woman, a Japanese woman, a Chinese woman is going through, right? And that's what whiteness tells us. There are no struggles, but if there are, they're separate. And what I was really hoping with this book and, you know, the foundation that so many luminaries have created before me, I stand on their shoulders, was to say, no, there is a political and social identity that we need to, you know, get very deeply connected with as women of color and build coalition so we can work together to fight, you know, racism and, you know, discrimination and bias. I appreciate that because I agree. It's going to take a lot of us raising our voices and it only helps those in power to fragment us and keep us pitted against one another. We lose sight of the reality that it's really anybody who's not white we're talking about, right? And that idea of gaslit really struck me as well, because that story about the woman of South Asian descent entering the Republican National Convention, that like stabbed me in the heart reading that story, because after that, and you all have to read this story and this book to understand the full um, scope of it, but she's just trying to get in as a journalist and all her white colleagues can get right in and she is stopped and harassed and made to feel like threatened and othered. 
And because of that, she was so distrusting of white people. I mean, probably also due to a whole set of circumstances leading up to that moment. But she didn't tell her colleagues what she experienced from the security guards. Her colleagues almost didn't even realize how serious of a situation she had faced trying to enter and just join them in their jobs together. And people don't know what they don't know. If, if you don't understand or don't listen or don't believe people's stories, you're going to miss out on opportunities. And people don't owe it to you to share that because sometimes they become so hurt and so distressful. And so I wanted to come back to this conversation, Misasha, and I have had a lot recently about that gap that you know, a lot of white women think that they're allies in the workplace. There's like 80% of them approximately are like, I am an ally. And yet the percentage of women of color who feel like they have allies are much, much less. And so obviously there's a gap, not enough is being done. And you're very clear that inclusion on purpose means using your privilege, whether it's from race or your gender privilege or your status, you know, whatever you have, you must use it to disrupt bias as you see it in action. So this is a white person problem. This is a white woman problem, a problem that shouldn't be placed at the feet of women of color to fix. So I wonder if you could share for those who haven't read the book, some specific, some intentional things that privileged groups can start doing to examine their thoughts and their actions. Yeah. Great, great question, Sarah. And I'm also thinking so much of that story. Thanks for bringing it up. What's really interesting about that story is I was lucky enough to interview you know, a close friend, Shafali Kulkarni, who I went to journalism school with, whom I always looked up to. I was like, this is a badass woman. You know, she's also super, supremely funny, like makes you laugh, like your sides of your stomach, like all of that. And, you know, we met over a decade ago. And then when I interviewed her for this book, you know, it started off as usual, Shafali's cracking jokes, like everything's great. And then slowly as she like unpacks the story and unloads the story. And I think for the first time really tells it in full, I can't describe what it felt like. I mean, both of us had tears streaming down our face. It was just, it was a culmination of, I think that realization that we had been told sort of similar stories in some ways, right? Like work hard, go to this great journalism school, work for all these top brands as journalists. And, you know, somehow like it's going to work out. And then that really what those moments feel like when you experience racism, you know, the type of racism that, you know, that changes you so profoundly, you will never be the same person again. For her to recount that experience, I mean, it stayed with me for days and months afterwards. Even when I wrote the story, I had to write it and then I had to stop and I had to start. It was just such an experience and such a painful reminder of what this looks like. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what, especially folks with privilege, white people, white women can you know, really get a good grounding in. I think where the awareness starts from is reading and devouring stories that we have put out for public consumption. So what I really dislike and you know the advice that I feel very worried about is the advice that that is kind of like oh go to a person of color and ask them how they're feeling about things. And that's really damaging for a number of reasons and what's much more helpful is seeking the stories that are already out there for public consumption, right? I was in conversation last night with Ijioma Ulo and one thing the two of us talked about quite extensively 
in some ways I was kind of, you know, putting words in her mouth. I was like, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say that I believe the reason the two of us write, even though it's so traumatic, even though it's so painful, the reason why we put this information out in the world is so that others don't have to, they don't have to re-traumatize themselves again and again. And worst of all, have these conversations one-on-one with a manager or with a leader or with someone you rely on, someone who you thought is your friend, having words and literature and content out there, hopefully, and being read and consumed very thoughtfully by white women and white people and other people with privilege who want to be intentional about educating themselves that's the reason why, you know, we do that apart from obviously centering women of color and being really clear about who we're really serving. So I think seeking out those stories, being really intentional about it is really important, right? Stories by us, you know, not white people telling our stories, I think is really important. The other thing is active listening is something that I found really lacking, right? A lot of times, especially when you speak to people who are used to being the center of attention, who are used to being centered in all stories is a lot of interrupting, a lot of, you know, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, or, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. My intention is more important than how you felt and the impact it had on you. And I think one of the big ways that we can see change is when more people with privilege, more white women can say, actually, you know, I don't have anything to contribute in this. And I'm just going to listen and I'm not going to listen to respond. I'm going to listen to hear and process internally. And when we lay down those defenses, even as, you know, even for me as a person who doesn't have white privilege, but certainly has socioeconomic privilege, I have benefited from the model minority myth of being, you know, a smart or perceived as a smart, hardworking, but not leaderly, you know, Asian woman, Indian woman, And even in those moments, a lot of my education, a lot of my self-awareness, building the self-awareness came from listening to stories of other women of color who had experienced far more marginalization than I had and not listening to respond, but listening to really hear is where, you know, some of the change could be made. First to me, I'm like, oh, we should do a session on like active listening on this show. (laughs) The other thing that, I mean, there's so many things I appreciate about your book, but you really break it down scenario by scenario in terms of like the process and the places where things can go wrong so often in the workplace. And I think frameworks, when you have the framework, everybody wins, right? Because if you build a framework that supports women of color, who, as you mentioned, are like the most negatively impacted by so much, then everybody's going to benefit. If you can create a framework that is clear and consistent and supports them. And so what are some of the frameworks that you offer in this book that work can, you know, that people at work can take on in certain situations? I mean, one that jumps to mind is this idea of giving feedback. There's very clear things or the interview process, right? Mm-hmm. Can you, what springs to mind for you to share with our audience right now? Yeah. And actually, when I think of your audience specifically, the one that really sticks out to me is around giving credit, right? And not taking credit, where it's undue, right? Where it's not due and giving credit and centering women of color when you give credit, because what we find and research is clear on this as well, that most of the times, even when great ideas are shared by women of color, they're overlooked, they're interrupted, they're not heard. 
And then later on, when someone with more privilege, and I've had this in meetings with white women, and this is also, you know, this speaks to the academy and a lot of the way that research is done. So the research is done on how white women are experiencing the workplace compared with white men. And a lot of those feelings of marginalization and those acts of, you know, really experiencing discrimination are very very much in tandem with the experience that women of color often have at the hands of white women. And we don't have enough research to show that. We intimately know as women of color what it's like to be in a meeting and, you know, suddenly, you know, a white woman will take credit for your idea or she'll suddenly say, hey, like I had this great idea that happened, uh, you know, and I'm going to share it with you. And suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, I remember telling this person over coffee or I tweeted this idea or whatever it is. And they get celebrated and lauded for it. And, you know, we don't have data that shows in that context. Most of the data is a man gets the credit, the woman doesn't get the credit. And so for, especially for white women listening to this podcast, what I really hope is there's an opportunity to think about credit, to think about who can we amplify? Are there opportunities where we use our platform to amplify and give credit to women of color and step away, right? It's not the, I'm the person leading this and I'm doing this benevolent act of giving a woman of color credit or shutting out to her or, you know, elevating her. It's really about how can I use this platform and then step away? And then I, and then there are examples in the book that I, you know, that I really, really hope illustrate what that really looks like. I appreciate that. One other methodology, and then I'll stop talking. But I loved this one because sometimes people are confused. They're like, well, do I really have a bias? And so you introduced this idea of the flip it to test it methodology. Could you please share it? Because I was like, I did it as I was reading. I'm like, oh, oh, I have this, you know, like I could feel it. And it's really practical and helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I will say I, you know, in this situation, I'm going to credit a white woman, Kristen Pressner, who is an executive at a pharmaceutical company who developed basically this methodology called flip it to test it. And it's essentially when you're in a situation where, you know, you're, for example, and she specifically talked about gender bias, right? So when you're using the words to describe a woman or a situation where you're saying, you know, a woman is very emotional or something like that, you flip that and put a man basically in the same position. And you say, would you call the man emotional? Would you reconsider, you know, if you're thinking about increasing someone's salary, and she has this great TEDx talk where she talks about how, when as a manager, she was asked to up-level a man and a woman who were on her team, their salary, she started realizing that she was much more ready to think about how could she raise the man's salary, right? And those unconscious sort of subconscious ideas of, oh, well, he's the breadwinner, he's the father, like all of those, and not really give the same amount of, uh, you know, credence to the woman on her team's salary request. And then flipping, when she was able to flip that, she was like, wow, okay, that's crazy. Why am I so... You know, I can't believe I have gender bias baked in. And I think a lot of people who do this work, the some of the early awakenings are like, oh my gosh, like I'm biased too. I say, you know, I write it in the book. I am racist. I make racist decisions, right? I, if you do not have the ability to own up to that and then work from there, 
you will never be able to truly create an inclusive anti-racist environment. So I take Kristen's framework and kind of take it a little step further. And I think it's really important when we are applying it to how women of color experience the workplace. So I use examples like, you know, as you build your awareness and become more fluent in some of the ways that, you know, bias and racism shows up for people of color, especially women of color, when you start flipping it to test it, you realize you would never call a white woman articulate, for example, right? Like she's white. Of course she speaks good English, but if you flip it and suddenly I'm getting, you know, I often get compliments, right? Which we now know are microaggressions or biased and exclusionary acts, which is what I write in the book and behaviors. That's when you flip it to test it, you realize that's the reason why it's a, you know, that's why it's biased because you would never call a white woman articulate or you would never compliment a white woman's English. But I often get complimented, you know, and air quotes here, I'm making them with my fingers on that. So I wish your book had been out because as we're talking, you know, I was thinking about my time at large law firms, right? And being a senior associate when the lean-in movement sort of came out. And it was a lot of time period of being in rooms largely full of white women talking about leaning in through a very white lens. And at the time, I did not have the words to express why this was very uncomfortable for me in a lot of ways. So now I wish I could just be like handing out your book and, and uh, you know, really, I think that that self-reflection, right? That intentionality that we've been discussing on an individual level is so, so important. And then I think about the layer that comes above it, right? Like the sort of the corporate level intentionality and how do we look at corporations, which are made up of people. They're not like some, you know, random thing in the sky. And so I want to ask you about that sort of intentionality alongside with imposter syndrome, because I had this really interesting discussion recently where someone who was very close to me had this presentation at work where they pulled the audience to see if people had felt imposter syndrome. So he had never felt that. And he was in the extreme minority there. He was in the 11% of people who had never felt that. And as he's telling me the story, I'm like, but, but I felt it. I felt it many times. And I hear people talk about addressing this right individually, like which never seems to work. And I, when I see people talking about this, I mean, most men in my lifetime, it's been most men and white, sometimes white women who are like, you know, just get rid of it. You're better than that. You can get out of your head and do this. But that really ignores the systemic nature that this in particular affects women of color. So I would love for you to address this and address, you know, why that individual, you know, just like, you know, find, pull yourself up and lean in. Yeah. Lean, lean in harder because you didn't lean in enough. You know, why that message is so problematic. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Ms. Tasha. And actually, I was also in the corporate environment. I was in technology around the time of the lean in movement and you can imagine, right, a tech leader writing about women needing to lean in and that's the way that they'd be successful in technology was basically literally the buzzword. Everyone in my environment, everyone I know was talking about it, reading this book, talking, you know, and it really, for the few bits of good that, you know, that Lean In did, 
it did so much more damage, right? And it really blamed women rather than these horrific systems that have been holding women, especially women of color back. So if I could go back in time, I really wish that either lead-in wasn't written or it was much more informed by the perspectives of women of color, which obviously was not. And so I think without systemic change, we are not going to reach the kind of you know world that we can even imagine that's much more equitable, diverse, inclusive, you know, one of belonging, a world and a culture, a work culture that centers women of color without fixing systems that have created these really terrible patterns where from a young age, women, especially and actually girls of color are rewarded for being more demure, more submissive, not speaking up, not leading, et cetera, et cetera. And then we shove them into the workplace and suddenly they're supposed to raise their hands and many do. And that's the thing. That's where that nuance of women of color becomes really important because I spoke to women Many women, especially who had been socialized outside the United States or in cultures outside the United States, I spoke to many African-American women who said, we have no trouble expressing ourselves. We have no trouble speaking up or raising our hands or quote unquote, literally leading in. The issue is that every time we do, we face such deep, dire pushback. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've felt it. I've been in that experience. And so without creating a system that really is you know bias free right and is anti racist we are not going to be able to create a, this imposter syndrome going to individuals and saying get rid of your imposter syndrome do the power pose do this that and the other it's not going to work it absolutely not and actually i actually think that it exacerbates the situation right because you can go to someone who generally for example for whatever reason is either an introvert or whatever it is, their social style is different from what's accepted in the workplace. They're told, oh, all you need to do is be more assertive. So they go and they try that on for size and they receive so much pushback, especially as a woman of color, that it actually doubles down on those feelings of, you know, inferiority or, you know, imposter syndrome, or I don't belong. I actually think every time someone hears someone talking about imposter syndrome, not only should they push back, but the real question then that should be replaced with is, are you working at a place that makes you feel like you don't belong? Or are you in a situation where you feel like you don't belong, right? And there are many social situations where you can feel like an imposter. And again, turning, flipping the lens from, it's something I need to do differently. Maybe I need to wear different clothes. Maybe I need to you know, talk about my kids more or whatever it is. And flipping that to actually this situation is one that isn't inclusive to me. First of all, we all just turned into bobbleheads, nodding with what you were saying. Totally. Like my head is like slamming forward with such a force. (laughs) Thank you. But I also love that reframing the flipping of the lens because so many times as women, regardless of how we show up, how many times have we been told by society that we need to question ourselves? We need to wear that right color lipstick, that outfit, that diet, that gym, like we are told to constantly question ourselves and imagine the revolution that could happen if we actually go, it's actually society and these groups that I'm not, that are not appreciating me and allowing me to be myself. And, and when I hear things like these conversations, I sometimes have that question from like a white woman out there being like, well, why should I care about including others? 
But if you have anybody, for example, who's neurodivergent in your life, if you have anybody who has anxiety or depression or is introverted or doesn't fit that mold, that one tiny itty bitty slice of humanity that is being held up as like what you're supposed to be like in heavy air quotes, you should care because all of these systems are oppressing those people too, right? We are all in this together. And we're talking about understanding that we are all human beings and there are a lot of us and we all show up so differently. And we need to take our sort of sweat equity, our privilege, anything we can use to really challenge these systems so that we are more inclusive of everyone. Yeah. And that's so well said, Sarah. And one of the challenges I find, you know, the defensiveness I find in the work I do is like, oh, again, back to this, like, why should I care? I'm not a woman of color. We know, you know, I use the statistic heavily and it's because it just completely changed my life and my mind when I read it, you know, three quarters of white people don't have a single friend of color. This is PRRI research. When I read that, it made sense, right? It made sense why I was getting all this pushback. Like, why, you know, why should we care about race? Like, you know, I'm not racist. And then I'm like, do you have any friends of color? No, I don't, you know, and it kind of made sense. And what is clear with this work and what is clear with when you're inclusive on purpose, when you center women of color, everyone benefits, right? And especially women of color with other marginalized identities, women of color who are neurodiverse, women of color who are, you know, disabled women of color who are, it just, you, the more sort of layers you go into, the more intersectional you can be, the more and intentional you can be about including those people, the more we can really all win. And the reason I say that is because when we do that, we are creating different styles of showing up and leadership and decision-making and being a valuable member of society and a civically engaged member of society that people can show up differently, right? And for people with privilege and power, you're so right. Someday that could be your child. Someday that could be someone, you know, really close to you whom you love, you know, and sometimes what I struggle with, especially in the United States, again, as someone who's an outsider is the very individualistic sort of approach to life, right? Does it benefit me? No, I'm not going to bother. Right. And we've seen that with really absurd, like, again, as someone who's, you know, who grew up outside this country, I'm like, really, you're going to challenge why women need paid time off to birth a child. One in four American mothers go back to work 10 days after giving birth. One in four. And that's very much linked to this individual idea of like, does it affect me? No, it doesn't affect me. I'm rich. I have the privilege. I can take time off because you know that's where I'm at. Those are the people who are making decisions in our country right now. And it's absolutely frightening. Well, I have to believe that some of it also comes from ignorance. How many people who are making these decisions understand exactly what happens to a woman's body when you give birth? Right. <laughs> like, if you don't know that, and if you haven't taken the time to educate yourself on the actual human impact of whatever situation, including childbirth, say, you have no business making that decision. For somebody else. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to center the people who are impacted by decisions, right? If you are in a position of privilege and power and you get to decide, you know, again, and I'm thinking much more in the workplace setting, but especially even in policy and legislation, really, really important to center the folks who are most affected by it. It's again, it seems like a no brainer. Yeah. And I feel like so far, 
I mean, I don't want to name specific companies, but if I'm brainstorming, I would say there's very, like there's a handful of companies that are starting to do this well compared to the slew of companies that are still mired in the old way. So there's a lot of room to change, but there may be a few leaders out there that we could all learn from who are doing this where it's successful and it's helping their bottom line. Because I think a lot of people are afraid of making these changes because it's the way it's always been done and we've made money. Oh my God, <laughs> it's the way it's always been done is my least favorite response, yes. But like- Imagine what could happen if people understand that this could be good for their bottom line too, as opposed to being afraid. This is going to center humanity. And time and again, with research that shows that, you know, happiness is a precursor to success. What we're talking about, helping people feel like they matter, is part of being happier. So, again, all of the science is pointing to human beings producing more for the company that they're happier working at. Yeah. And even if this isn't about like late stage capitalism and production and whatnot. It's that camaraderie I was able to build with other women of color. It created this feeling of like, I'm so excited by what I do and the work that I do. And I'm so thrilled. I feel so fulfilled. And I speak again as someone who, you know, did not see that modeled for me. I didn't see careers modeled for women who looked like me, who were, you know, from, off, you know, who were Indian and grew up in the Indian diaspora in the countries that I lived in, a lot of my friends were often the first in their families to really do paid work outside the home. And if not, you know, to even think about what purpose meant, right? It was less about paying the bills than more about what work could I do that could fulfill my purpose that could really give me meaning and joy. And so for me, I think it's ridiculous that we are expecting people to go into the workplace, women of color go into the workplace, you know, tell them that they can pursue any dream that they want, have all the ambition. And then when we get there, we just push them against the wall. You know, they face such terrible circumstances. I mean, you know, you've read some of them in the book and to me, it's just weird, right? It's weird. You brought us here and then you just want to treat us so poorly. What's up with that? Yes. I just want to point out, I love that you said women who do paid work outside the home because I was reading something recently about this difference. Like, do we call them working dads? Why is it only working moms? And and what does working mean? And so anyway, I just appreciated that differentiation with how you described that idea of having a job and working out for pay outside of the home. It was very specific. Anything else that we haven't asked that you think is important for our audience to hear? You know, what's interesting and what's heartbreaking is the amount of unpaid work that women take on, right? Even women who are not mothers, women of color so much more disproportionately. I hope that folks listening to this conversation will be reminded of the multiple stressors on the lives of women of color. I mean, the pandemic revealed this, right? The burnout, the mental health, so largely acutely felt by mothers of color, especially uh, working mothers of color, women who do paid work outside the home who identify as mothers and are women of color. It is heartbreaking. And so for folks listening to this, I really hope they can understand that there are things that privilege safeguard you from. Some of the leaders I was talking to in companies when I was, we were talking about, you know, some of my clients, when we were talking about return to the office, it was astonishing to me how many white male leaders and some white women leaders were like, yeah, we're ready to come back into the office. And then later on, you know, you speak to people of color, women of color working there and they're like, I can't even explain to you, you know, what it's been like to have children, you know, and not have the financial resources and have to 
you know, complete the paid work, have to do childcare, have to do homeschooling, like all of these things, you know, not have the same access to, you know, healthcare. It's just, it was heartbreaking. I was like, are we even living through the same pandemic? Right. And so I, I hope for folks who are listening to this, even as we're coming towards what feels like maybe towards a sort of end for this, it's not the end for everybody right? It's not the end by a long shot for, especially for women of color, the statistics about the number of, you know, it's really dire, the reality that most women of color don't want to go back into an in-office environment because they're so concerned about having to deal with racism and microaggressions and bias again. So this is really, we're at an inflection point where we can make a lot of change and we really should, and we should learn lessons not waste this crisis. I especially love that you talked about the pandemic at the end, right? And how people, you know, it's not over for a lot of people. And I was just listening to this podcast about COVID and they were talking about the 1918 pandemic, right? And and how deaths in the second year of the pandemic and the third year of the pandemic actually stayed the same, but the policies drastically changed after the second year because everyone just decided they were done with it. And so when you have people who are decision makers who decide like, well, we're done, right? Then policies shift, but you still leave a whole large part of the population who are not done unprotected. And so I think that's something that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we are looking at, you know, moving from pandemic to endemic. And what does that mean for everyone, right? Not just for people who are, you know, are in different situations and feel like I'm fine, I can do this. It's not that reality for everyone. So thank you for raising that. So, you know, there are so many things that you said that I want to sit with and, but if there's one like sort of last thing that you want to share with our listeners, what would that be? I think for anyone listening, it would be really meaningful if more of us understood that we have the power to shift the experience of more marginalized people than us. We really do. And it takes intention and it takes awareness and it takes hard work and it takes action. And it's not, you know, the rewards are not immediate in the sense that, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get a cookie for it. But in the long run, the opportunity to create a better world than the one that you found, I mean, that's profound. So I really hope that people, when they read this book, when they read other books like it, when they listen to podcasts like yours, they recognize, they realize like you do have the power, you know, it's not about, oh, well, these are huge issues. And, you know, what can I do as an individual? You can, you just have to be really intentional about it. I love it. So if people want to find your book and find you, where can they do that? My website is rtulshan, so R-T-U-L-S-H-Y-A-N.com, or you could go to inclusiononpurpose.co.co. And beyond that, you know, I'm very active on Twitter. It, I also use the handle rtulshan. I love LinkedIn and Instagram. And any way you'd like to connect with me, I'd love to connect with you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Miss Asha. I just, to be in community and conversation with women of color who really get it, who really feel it, you know, you talk about some of the stories from the book that resonated with you. That's a very special experience. And I will say it's an experience that 
I don't get very often, you know, in this work. A lot of my work is explaining why is this important? Why should we care? You know, why does this matter? Do people really feel that bad? Like, what does the data show? And to be able to be in community and conversation like this is pretty special and pretty rare for me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.